0: with me in the Bibles to Isaiah, chapter 40. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 this morning. Uh, we just started a, a Christmas series, if you will. Uh, we're basically going through some of the um, Advent hymns as sort of the jumping off uh, point for the text that we're going to be using each Sunday through Christmas. And I've been purposely going through the more are the lesser well-known hymns, uh, Christmas hymns, to get you, um, uh, the, there's a lot of theology that sometimes we miss that these older hymns do a really good job of conveying. So I wanted to start with some of these. We were in Psalm 24 last week. This week we're in Isaiah 40. Hear the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 1. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word as it has been revealed unto us. It has been recorded for us uh, for all generations, for all times. Lord, we might know the word of our God. We might know your plan for us. We might know your plan for the restoration of the world through the good news, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we would receive that good news today with joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to start with the trivia question this morning. Where was the famous folk singer John Denver originally from? I figured somebody would say that. Mainly because perhaps uh, his original name was Duschendorf, but he changed it to Denver. Good move, but no, he's not from Denver. Even though there is a song called Rocky Mountain High, Colorado that he also sang. But no, it's not Denver, Colorado. Others of you might say, perhaps, West Virginia, right? Because of another song he wrote, Take Me Home, Country Road. But again, you'd be wrong. John Denver never visited the state of West Virginia. Certainly was not from West Virginia. In fact, uh, the, the married couple who originally penned the words to that song and later gave it to John Denver to sing also had never been to the state of West Virginia when they wrote that song, just so you know. They were traveling down a country road as they were coming up with the song, but they were in the state of Maryland at the time. But Maryland didn't quite fit the rhythm of the song. Maryland, doesn't work. In fact, uh, as they were hearing the radio, they were thinking far away of home, they were thinking of the state of Massachusetts because that's where he's from. Had nothing to do with the state of West Virginia at all, but West Virginia fit. It simply fit, so they stuck with it. And before the days of the internet, they had to go to an encyclopedia and read up about the state of West Virginia and talked about the Shenandoah Valley and the Blue Ridge Mountains, which are primarily actually in the state of Virginia rather than West Virginia. So even many of the facts are not true other than the moonshine part. John Denver is actually from the state of New Mexico, particularly from the town of Roswell. Strangely, he never sang about that place. Perhaps because he felt like an alien in his own hometown. Some of you will get that later. Regardless of the fact, though, Country Roads not only became a famous song to West Virginia, it's, it's actually one of the, the capitals in the state song today. It became a favorite song of many throughout the United States, and in fact, throughout the world. Many, many people have loved this song because it resonates with us. We all have this sense of... Nostalgia and longing for, particularly our childhood home, but uh, something that that seems familiar to us, but you can imagine what it would be like even this day. Sixty million refugees around the world living far away from home, longing to go home, and yet can't because of war and oppression. Clearly, when they hear songs on the radio, it perhaps reminds them of their home far away, that they should have been home yesterday yesterday. If you can get a picture of this in your mind, this is the type of people that Isaiah is writing to in chapter 40 of our text this morning. A people who have lived far away from home for 70 years. They have been captives in a foreign land in the land of Babylon and they have become slaves there. In fact, if you read in Psalm 137, Um, the author is helping us to understand the mindset of these people who are living in a foreign land under a foreign rule. It says there they would sit and weep when they remembered their home far away in Zion. And there in Babylon they hung up their lyres and refused to sing for how could they sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. It was to this type of people, a, a group of very despondent Jews who were longing for home, this is whom Isaiah was writing to. And here Isaiah is saying to them in a nutshell, God has not forgotten you. He will be faithful to His covenant to you, and He will bring you back home. For the sake of His own name and for the sake of His glory, He will bring you home. But this is a, it's a dramatic change of tone in the book of Isaiah that begins primarily in chapter 40. For if you remember, uh, the first half of the book doesn't have this hopeful tone whatsoever. In fact, most of you are probably familiar with Isaiah chapter 6 more than many of the other passages in the first half of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, that's where Isaiah receives his famous call to the ministry, if you remember. He sees that vision of the Lord sitting high up up on the throne and the seraphim are flying around His throne and and all of a sudden he, he hears them saying again and again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? And from the throne he hears a voice saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And immediately Isaiah says eagerly, Here I am. Send me. I'll go out. I'll be your messenger. Uh, But when God actually tells him what the message is, it's not the type of message that the average messenger wants to hear. For he tells him that I'm sending you to a stiff-necked people who are very dull of heart. Not only do they not want to listen to you, but they won't even understand what you're saying. But primarily, the message that he gives is one of judgment. It's one of confrontation. He's confronting them over and over again because of their sin. And so Isaiah immediately asks the question, how long? How long am I to to do this? How long am I to continue to give this bleak message to your people? And the Lord answers in this way, saying, until the cities lie in ruin, until there are no inhabitants left, until... The, the city is emptied of its glory and only a remnant remains. Well, the prophet's been faithful. He's continued to give this message of judgment, this confrontational message again and again. The last time we see Isaiah in uh, the Scriptures, he's at the ripe old age of 70 and he's confronting King Hezekiah with another message, a very bleak message. He's warning him that everything that he has will be carried away to Babylon. Babylon that his kingdom will be demolished, that his sons will be carried away and even made into eunuchs to serve in the palace of the king of Babylon instead. And afterwards, we don't hear from him again. But we know that he he lives for at least a few more years because tradition tells us that during the reign of King Manasseh, he's still preaching some dark message to the king there. and Manasseh doesn't take to it very kindly at all and actually has the prophet sawn in two, literally. So when Hebrews is talking about people that have been sawn in two, he's referring to the prophet Isaiah for having to continue to give this message when he said, here am I, send me. Most of us probably wouldn't agree to go if we knew that was going to be our end, but that's exactly what he did. But now, in the second half of the book of Isaiah, he's giving them a very comforting message in comparison to that confrontational message. And because of this, a lot of liberal scholars believe that it actually wasn't him who wrote the second half of this book. In fact, there's a theory that they put out that there are in fact three men who wrote the book of Isaiah, that the, that the traditional prophet that we know of perhaps wrote the first 39 chapters prior to the time in, ex- in exile. And then there's an anonymous author supposedly wrote chapters 40 through 55 during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And then there's perhaps a a third anonymous author who wrote during the time of the return from exile. And the reason they think that is primarily because of the huge time leap, if you will, between chapter 39 and chapter 40. So basically, 39 is the last time we see Isaiah, and in that passage... The Assyrian armies have come. It's about 701 B.C. They've come to attack the city of Jerusalem, and and God defends the city from these invaders. But now in chapter 40, God's people are already in Babylon, and this is almost 200 years later, where they're looking forward to coming back home. Now, we know that Isaiah was already 70 at the time, and people weren't living 500 years anymore at that time. And so it'd be impossible for him to speak these words face to face. So what would have had to have happened is the Lord would have had to have given him this vision and to speak to a generation yet to be born. So you can see why the liberals would have a hard time with this. They don't believe in the miraculous. They don't believe that God actually works through Scripture in that regard. Uh, it would be too too much of a a, a jump in faith for them to, to hold on to that. But if you look at the book as a whole, there is a change in tone between the first half and the second half. But you'll also see, even in the first half, small foretaste of this comfort that's to be given. To where you can tell it's the same author through and through. He's continually to say that there is hope. Yet he's not giving it to them fully. We we continue to see this hope of Emmanuel, God with us, who is coming in the flesh to give them uh, salvation. But Isaiah seeing all this in the future, and so he's actually not just confronting the people of his own age, but actually giving comfort to their sons and their grandsons and the generations to come to let them know that God indeed has a plan still for them after judgment. And, and, and the Apostle Peter tells us very plainly in his epistle that this is normal, that prophets most of the time understood that the message that they were giving at that time when they wrote scripture, they knew it wasn't for them. They knew it wasn't for their own generation, but for the generations to come. In fact, Peter is saying not only was it not for them and not even for the people who were living in the second or third generation uh, in Babylon, but, but even for his own generation and even for our generation. These things were written down for us that we might act upon them. We might apply them in some way or another. So that's the That's the the challenge for us today. How do we apply these Old Testament passages that continue to point us to something that's still yet to come? The Lord's message that's given through Isaiah in this passage can be summarized in this way. It's sort of the four points, if you will, for the, the message this morning. Here's the message that Isaiah gives that generation. First, they are still to be called God's people, even though they've undergone great judgment. Second, their sin has now been paid in full. Very important concept to grasp. Third, God will indeed bring them home. And fourth, God's anointed king will come and reign in glory, not just in Judah, but over all the nations of the world. And this is what's leading us to Christmas, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, let's talk about how he still calls them his people. Even though the Lord had brought great judgment upon Israel and had really just devastated the land and and, and brought death and destruction to to numerous households, we're seeing over and over again that the Lord is still keeping a remnant. He is still preserving a remnant who bear His name That He'll continue to have His name placed upon them. At one time, the descendants of Abraham were as numerous as the sands of the seashore. But now they're very few in number, and they're held in captivity in Babylon. But yet, they're still his people. He has not revoked his covenant. They are still his people. And now he's speaking tenderly to them, giving them mercy, promising them comfort. Now, most of you are probably familiar with at least the Hallelujah Chorus of Handel's Messiah. right? Perhaps you've even seen the flash mobs from time to time in the malls that just break up. Hallelujah, right? We know the, the general gist of the chorus, but do you know how Handel's Messiah actually begins? It doesn't begin with the hallelujah. It actually begins with these words from the very first verse of Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfort, comfortably to Jerusalem. The same words that we'll sing later on in a Christmas hymn that you're probably not as familiar with either. But why this word of comfort? Well, the book of Lamentations, which you may be familiar with in the first chapter, shows us what happens to God's people after God brings this devastating judgment upon the land because of their sin. And he pictures the whole nation of Judah as a woman stretching out her hands in anguish, sort of lying on the side of the street. She's just experienced the death of her own children. She's experienced devastation all around her. Town is on fire. Everything's burning. And she's stretching out her hands and saying, Who will comfort me? There's no comfort for the people of God. That's pretty much the message of Lamentations. Where is this comfort? We've, brought, we've undergone great devastation and judgment, but where is the comfort? And Isaiah is sort of the response to the book of Lamentations because there's a huge theme throughout the book where God continues to say, I am your comforter, I'm coming to bring you comfort. We'll see this again and again. Again, uh, sometimes it, it's helpful uh, for me to sort of give you a broad perspective of, of at least the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament because we're not as familiar with some of these passages. But in Isaiah 49, verse 13, we read this, Sing for joy, O heavens! Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people. He's not left her alone. Isaiah 51, three. For the Lord comforts Zion, He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like the Garden of Eden. Joy and gladness will be found in her. In that same chapter, the Lord asked this question, who will console you, O Zion? Who will comfort you? He's sort of playing off this theme of, of uh, the Israelites constantly looking to idols for comfort, and yet they can never bring comfort. They can never console them. They can't help them in their time of need. Who will comfort you? Who will comfort you? He keeps asking that question. And finally, He says to them, I, I am He who comforts you. Stop looking to the idols. I am the comforter. Finally, Isaiah 61, God's messenger says this, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me to bring good news, to bring this message. I am coming to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And then in Isaiah 66, 13, he says, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And so now when you see this in Isaiah 40, He says, comfort, comfort. It's a double blessing, a double aspect of comfort. He's promising comfort to God's people who had complained that God could never comfort them. He's saying, I will comfort you. He longs to give comfort to those who have lost their homes. He longs to give comfort to those who have lost their homes their loved ones. He longs to give comfort to orphans and to widows. He longs to give comfort to prisoners and to slaves. He longs to give comfort to those who are heavy burdened. He longs to give comfort to those who are mourning over their sin. He is the comforter. He's promised to comfort His people in this way. It's very important that we get that. It's a primary message in the book of Isaiah. But it's just the beginning of the good news. That God still calls His people by his own name, and he promises to give them comfort. But this leads us to the second point. Isaiah says, essentially, also your sin has been paid in full. This is pretty good news, right? Verse 2, he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, that, that first part about her warfare being ended is probably not the best translation. For the exiles in Babylon had not been in war in quite some time. The, the word in the Hebrew can refer to an army or an act of war, but it also can refer to a tour of duty, if you will, for a soldier, as well as a time of service for a slave. And I think that's actually what Isaiah has in mind here. He's saying you have served as a slave long enough. You have endured your punishment long enough. You have endured this harsh labor long enough. Now I'm going to free you from this and forgive you for all of your sin. And so uh, it's, it's, in fact, the language is, is sort of meant to be reminiscent of the same language that was granted to Israel during the time of their captivity in Egypt. I'm going to free you from your slavery to this harsh taskmaster, and I'm going to bring you to a place called home, right? Uh, not only has her harsh labor been ended, her iniquity has also been pardoned in full. Now, if you read through the first half of the book of of Isaiah, Israel is continually referred to as a very wicked nation. Again, the first thirty-nine chapters almost consistently, very sinful nation, a people heavy laden with iniquity. He says they're offspring of evildoers, sort of the the, the eggs of snakes. They're just horrible in every way. They had continually forsaken the Lord. They had continually despised the Holy One of Israel. For hundreds of years, they had broken God's laws. For hundreds of years, they had spat in His face. Which is why He brought them to Babylon in the first place, because of their great, great iniquity. And yet here, after only 70 years of captivity, He says Israel's iniquities have been fully pardoned. Now let me ask you this. Does 70 years of punishment make due for hundreds of years of sin? Not normally. (laughs) In fact, this passage doesn't make any sense, especially in regards to saying, and I have paid you double for all your sin. Really? Is it really double? Seems more like half, maybe, or, or a fraction thereof. No, this passage doesn't make sense unless we interpret it Uh, uh, through the lens of another passage later on in Isaiah 53 where the Lord's servant who is now representing Israel, He's representing her, and He says all of her sin has been laid upon this person, this suffering servant, and He would be paid double for all of her sin. The reason why she is able to be forgiven of her sin is because her punishment is paid in full by someone else who has taken it all. All of that iniquity has been placed upon Him. And therefore, her burden could be lifted, but only because He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord would lay upon Him the iniquity of us all. But again, that's just part of the good news. gets better. Third point, God will bring you home might not seem clear to us at first in this passage but it will the more again I expand the whole message of Isaiah for you but if you look here in 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 verse three the Lord is preparing a highway in the desert uh, so that the Lord himself can come on this highway it says uh, in verse 3, the voice is crying in the desert. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now that's the language that's normally used of Assyrian kings historically, that they would send out armies in advance of them to prepare the way so they could conquer new lands. Okay, So the king is coming, make sure the, the, the road is clear so that he can come and he can conquer. But here, instead what it is, is the Lord is making his way to Babylon to bring his people out of Babylon. Make the way clear so that he can come and, and, and remove his people from their captivity. And now the time that the punishment has come to an end, the Lord's glory is returning to the nation of Israel, and he's bringing his people with them. It's a very important point. The That language is used throughout Scripture to show the Lord is leading his people back to the promised land. So let, let me give you a few examples to prove this to you Psalm 68, verses 7 and 8. David is, is writing about the original exodus out of Egypt. He uses the same language. He says, the Lord went before his people, marching through the wilderness to lead them out of Egypt to their home. Now Isaiah, continually throughout his book, is using that same language to bring his people out of captivity. Isaiah 35, he says this, the wilderness shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice, for they shall see the glory of the Lord. Behold, your God will come. He will save you. A highway shall be there in the desert called the way of holiness, and all the ransomed of the Lord shall return to Zion with singing. The Lord will bring you home. Isaiah 48, verses 20 and 21, he says to Israel, go out from Babylon with a shout of joy, for the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Isaiah 49, verses 9 and 12, he says, come out. For the Lord will make all of His mountains a road that His people might come from afar, for the Lord has comforted His people. Finally, Isaiah 62, verses 10 and following. He says, prepare the way, not this time for the Lord, but prepare the way for the people. Build up the highway, clear it of stones. Behold, the Lord's salvation comes and His reward is with Him. So again, he's using the same language saying, make a way for the Lord to come and bring you home. Not just to reveal the king, but so that the king can come and live with you forever. That's his point. In fact, the the first fulfillment of this is seen with King Cyrus. Again, this is another reason why the liberals don't like the book of Isaiah and try to divide it amongst different authors. Isaiah mentions this guy named Cyrus by name hundreds of years before he was ever born and says that Cyrus is coming, and he, he presents this famous decree in 539 B.C., again, 150 years after uh, the Assyrian invasion, and and the Lord says of him in Isaiah forty five, I will go before you. This is of Cyrus, and I will level the exalted places so that you can build my city and set my exiles free. He says, particularly using his name again, the Lord has raised you up for this very purpose to restore God's people to the promised land. So the the Lord had promised long before this guy ever even came into being. That he would be this conqueror and this savior and this shepherd who would lead God's people back to their homeland. But he was always meant to be just a type that would point to the anti-type. So in other words, he was just a foreshadowing of a much greater savior who was to come. Isaiah sees this other savior as well, and he keeps calling him Emmanuel. He keeps pointing to this one who is to come, who will save not just his people, but even all the nations of the world, which leads us to the fourth point. God's anointed king, the Lord Jesus, will come, and he will reign in glory over all the world. This is Isaiah's message as well. Uh, Again, if you're familiar, the the words of verse 4 in this passage, uh, this is where he talks about every valley shall be lifted. Again, perhaps Handel's Messiah, maybe you know that part a little bit. Every valley. Got that part? No? You've got to listen to Handel's Messiah. It's really good. They don't have Christmas songs out today on the radio. They're going to give you the full gospel like Handel's Messiah will give you the full gospel using the very words of Scripture. Go listen to it on the radio. It takes you through these Old Testament passages and points you to Christ. I wish Christmas songs could do that today, but instead we sing about stupid things. But in this passage, again, now we see that the New Testament is putting these same words into a new prophet's mouth, right? We see John the Baptist coming on the scene, the same passage we read from earlier in Luke. And this time, instead of leveling the mountains and raising up valleys to make the road easier for the Lord's people to return to Jerusalem, they're already in Jerusalem, but they're still not home. And so now, John is applying this same passage to the hearts of men to prepare the way for the king to come and bring them to their eternal resting place. And so he says, same thing, that every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain brought low, to refer to this idea that every proud man has to be humbled. Every weak and lowly man has to be raised up through their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by preparing that way for the Lord to come, they will be on that road of holiness to their eternal resting place. That's the point of this passage. The road is being prepared, not for Christ just to come to to earth the first time as a baby, but then to lead them home. He's coming to lead them home. Verse 5, Isaiah says this, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Because now we're beginning to see a global perspective in the book of Isaiah. It's not just a salvation for the Jews. It's a salvation for all the nations of the world, every tribe and tongue. Again, let me show you this. There are a couple passages in the Old Testament. You okay that I keep skipping around here? Isaiah is a very profound book. You would not understand the Gospel of Christ without it. In fact, almost every prophecy that we have in reference to the birth of Christ, most of them are coming from Isaiah. Isaiah 19, verses 23-25. The prophet foresees a day, he says, when there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria that runs through Jerusalem, so that the Egyptians, the Assyrians... And the Jews will worship God together. He foresees a day in which Jews and filthy Gentiles are offering their sacrifices of praise unto God together. He says, In that day, Israel will be lifted up as a blessing in the midst of the earth when the Lord says, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. He's promising that the Egyptians and the Assyrians will be elevated to the level of the Jews that they too will be called God's people. This is outstanding and yet frightful for some Jews. For if you remember, Jonah was not really happy about the sins of the Ninevites being forgiven, right? You remember this? Well, the Ninevites are Assyrians. And Isaiah here is saying that the Assyrians will be called my people, right? This is, a, this is a problem at first. You can see why the Jews would not be excited. About it. But nevertheless, the prophets of the Jews are telling, this is what's going to happen. This is, this is God's plan all along, not only to call upon the Jews, but that the blessings of Abraham would fall upon the Gentiles as well. That he would be a blessing to all nations of the earth. Again, we see this in Isaiah 66, verses 18 and following. The prophet says, well, he, he foresees that a time is coming to gather all the nations of the world, all the tongues of every man, that they might come and see the glory of the Lord. And particularly, he says this to Isaiah, I will send survivors to the nations of Tarshish. That's a fun name to say, Tarshish. And to the coastlands far away that have not heard of my fame nor seen my glory. Do you remember anything particular about the city of Tarshish? Jonah? Jonah? Not Tarsus, but Tarshish. Different word. Close, though. Tarshish was the name of the town that Jonah was trying to run away from God to. Because they, the Jews believed God wasn't there. Because he's in a faraway land where God doesn't deal with those people. Right? But here Isaiah specifically is saying to rebuke Jonah and those of the same mindset. I'm sending people there that they might know of my fame, that they might know of my glory, and that they might worship me as the one true God. He's overcoming everything that Jonah has said. No, this can't be. It can't be. The Lord's saying, it is, and it will be. All the nations of the world will call upon the name of the Lord. And particularly, he says, Isaiah would blow Jonah's mind with this. The Lord promises not just to receive them, but to appoint them as priest in His holy temple. The filthy Gentiles are now serving as priests in God's temple. And this has come to pass. We see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter is speaking to the church consisting of Jews and Gentiles, saying this, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people of His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the darkness into His what? Marvelous light. For it's just as Isaiah had foreseen, all flesh would come and worship before the Lord, the King. All people. The promise of God revealed 600 years prior to the time of Christ is now seen to be true. All of these promises are continuing to be fulfilled, not just during the days of Isaiah and later on, but even in our days. We're seeing people from all around the world. Even in in, in some of the the, the hardest places in the world, places like Saudi Arabia, people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, making their offerings of praise unto the Lord and not unto Allah. The Lord gives this comparison in verses 6-8 through if you look back there in our text. He's comparing the flesh of men to the Word of God. He says, the flesh of men are like grass that withers and fades away. In other words, you may not see this in your generation. You're going to fade away. But what remains? The promises of God. The Word of God will be brought to pass. It will come to fruition. God will bring it about exactly as He said, and that's exactly what has happened. The Word of God is coming true. But the real question is, would the people believe it? Well, obviously the first generation didn't, which is why they were brought under judgment. The second generation saw some of it, but still questioned the aspects about the Gentile stuff. But now, God is redeeming for Himself a people, releasing them, not just from an Egyptian captivity or from a Babylonian captivity, but from a captivity unto Satan himself. To redeem them from their sin. Redeem them from their slavery in the darkness in order to bring them home. Now, this is good news. This is very good news. And so notice in verse 9 what he says. (laughs) What are you to do with this good news? He tells the believers in Israel, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, O herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Just as Miriam and Moses immediately sang a song of praise unto God after leading them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and they said, "Who is a God like unto thee?" Right Now, in the same way he's saying, Isaiah saying to his generation, "Sing a new song unto the Lord, He has brought you out of Babylon. He has saved you. In the same way we're told to sing a new song today that Christ has brought us out of slavery unto sin and death forever." You see, that's the point of this passage. where it's going. But he particularly tells them twice. He calls them heralds of good news. If you translate from, that, from the Hebrew to the Greek to the English, basically what he's saying is, you are evangelists. You are the gospel preachers. You are the gospel tellers. Go tell it on a mountain. Literally, the words of our Christmas hymn that we sing comes directly from this passage. He's saying to that generation, tell it to all the cities of Judah, which is why Jesus is telling the disciples to go throughout the cities of Judah to tell them first, but then afterwards, tell it to the world that the Lord has come to redeem His people. He has called them by name. He has forgiven all of their sins. He's bringing them home so that He can reign over them. Injustice and righteousness forever. And so we're called to do the same thing. We're called to proclaim that message as loudly as we can. To proclaim to our friends and family members the comfort of our God. He is the comforter. Tell them of the comforts of God that could be found in Jesus Christ. That those who were once strangers and aliens in this world are now looking for a better home. Looking for a home that can only be found in Christ. Christmas is just the beginning of the good news. The story continues to go on. But this is, this is what we're beginning to see at this time of year as we're studying the passages at Luke. Do you remember Simeon? Remember the old guy in the temple when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus during the days of purification? And you remember what it said he was looking for when they came into the temple? It said he was looking for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he's looking for the one who's to bring them comfort. He knew that Cyrus was not the comforter that they were looking for. He knew that he was only a type pointing to a greater comforter to come, a greater conqueror to come, a more tender shepherd to come who would not only conquer all of their enemies, but also lead them to green pastures and still waters to their final resting place that they might dwell where? In the house of the Lord forever. This is the promise. This is the gospel of Isaiah. This is what we're being taught, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New. This is how we're meant to respond as well to the promises of of the Gospel, that just as Simeon now sees the consolation of Israel and holds Jesus in his arms, he says what? Now your servant can depart in peace, for I have seen your salvation, O Lord. Now that our eyes have seen his plan, what does he call us to do but to embrace the Savior? Make room for Him. Make the roads straight for Him. Not simply so that He can come, so that He can take us to be with Him forever. And to know and to go back to our home, that original place we think of as the Garden of Eden, we think of it as paradise, we think of it as heaven, but when Christ brings heaven to earth, that He might live with us forever. This is the hope of the Gospel. It can only be found in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Make a straight path for Him. And He will lead you home. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would continue to open our eyes to the beauty of Your Word as it's found in the Scriptures. We pray that You would continue to help us to weed through all the details Sometimes the historical details can be overwhelming. Sometimes the cultural uh, differences can be overwhelming. But we pray, Father, that You would make it plain for us that we would be looking for the same Savior that Adam and Eve were looking for, the same Savior that Abraham and Moses were looking for, the same Savior that David and Isaiah were looking for, that we have found Him. His name is Jesus, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. Lord, let us look to him by faith. Let us rejoice in that name. Let us shout it from the mountaintop that our Savior has come and he's coming to lead his people home. We pray these things.